Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to another podcast with your Swedish thoracic surgery team. I'm your host, Kelly Dawes, and today we're excited to share a clinical challenge with you about one of our favorite topics to debate here as a team. When faced with a complex pleural effusion or empyema, should we book the patient for a VATS decortication or should we trial non-operative management with lytic therapy? This topic was just way too exciting to fill a single episode, so enjoy part one in which we discuss predominantly managing these complex pleural effusions with lytic therapy, followed by part two, where we dive deeper into the surgical management of these complex pleural effusions. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to part one of our clinical challenges in thoracic surgery, complex pleural effusions, and empyema. Before we dive in, we want to share a quick update on one of our prior episodes, which discussed the Adura trial. Recall that this trial looked at adjuvant osimertinib versus placebo in EGFR-mutated stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer. They just presented their five-year survival data at ASCO in June, We covered their initial analysis on our journal review, Adjuvant Therapy in Lung Adenocarcinoma, in November of 2021. We discussed how their initial data demonstrated excellent disease-free survival. Well, now at ASCO, they presented their data that shows osimertinib versus placebo also improves overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.49. Keep on the lookout for the paper as it should be published later this year. Now let's dive in to part one of our clinical challenges, complex pleural effusions and empyemas. Here to take us through our clinical challenge today, we have Dr. Brian Louie. Howdy do. Dr. Peter White. Hi. And joining us for the first time as a guest on our podcast today, we have Dr. Jed Gordon. Thoracic surgery plus one, Jed Gordon. (laughs) Dr. Gordon, we're excited to have you with us today. Dr. Gordon, for all you guys out there who don't know him, is an interventional pulmonologist who works closely with our thoracic surgery team here at Swedish. He's published several studies comparing intrapleural fibrinolytic therapy to surgery for complicated pleural effusions, including a randomized pilot study. We're lucky to have him here at Swedish and are excited to have him join us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right into our clinical challenge. Our first patient is a 39-year-old male who presented to an outside hospital with three days of left-sided chest pain. His initial chest imaging with x-ray and CT scan showed a small left lower lobe opacity concerning for pneumonia and a small effusion. 
he got admitted. He was started on empiric antibiotics. And now they're calling the thoracic surgery team. Because on hospital day three, his chest x-ray shows his effusion has increased in size. His white count has jumped from 12 to 21. And a repeat CT scan shows a large effusion now with compressive atelectasis of the majority of the left lower lobe and part of the left upper lobe. So what's the first thing you want to do? Well, Kelly, I think the first step again is to just remind ourselves about his antibiotic coverage and what he's been covered since admission. And because there's clear progression, we probably would broaden his coverage and make sure the anaerobes are occluded. His effusion is also involved into what I think is a complicated paranomonic effusion. Remember that uncomplicated pleural effusions are less than half the hemithorax. They're more free-flowing, and they really have no evidence of infection on pleural fluid studies or culture. These often, as you know, will resolve with antibiotics alone. However, these complicated effusions are larger. They often involve greater than half the hemithorax. They're loculated. They have evidence of inf infection either overtly with pearl and fluid, a positive gram stain, or culture, or evidence of sepsis. So for this patient with a complicated effusion and concern for empyema, he needs drainage for both diagnosis and source control. And I would place a chest tube that said pleural fluid studies, including a cell count, LDH, pH, protein, and glucose. Although I'm pretty sure he's going to turn out to be exudative, then I'd get a follow-up chest extra to assess the adequacy of drainage. Great to agree with that. And for this patient that needs the effusion drained, Jed, what are your options for pleural drainage? And for this particular patient, what would you do? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So, uh, Pleural drainage is critical to evacuating uh, the pleural space, getting the two pleural surfaces in that position. That's really the only way that we're going to totally control the process that's going on in the pleural space. And the key to drainage, I think, in this day and age is ultrasound. Ultrasound allows us to look at the fluid. It allows us to understand if there's loculations, and it allows us to best target the best place to put the catheter. Now, there's two things when you're draining pleural fluid. You can sample it. You can use a thoracentesis, usually a small nine-ish French catheter or even just a needle and sample it. Or you can put in a pigtail-style tube somewhere on the order of 12 to 16 French. We most often put in something that's 14 French. The advantage of the latter scenario of going straight to the pigtail catheter is that we're both sampling and we're draining. It's one procedure, it's one kit, more cost-effective, and it's actually getting where you need to be quicker. So typically when the pretest probability that this is a complex pleural space that's going to require uh, more than just simple sampling, we'll move straight to placing some sort of drainage device, and our go-to is the 14, uh, 14 French catheter. Now, you can place a surgically uh, placed uh, chest tube, a larger bore chest tube, uh, 20 to 28 French in size. You know, there's really no consensus on this. Um, it it kind of depends on comfort level, uh, institutional preference, who's on call. The goal here are twofold. One is safe and effective drainage. And the second is patient comfort. So we can't sort of forget that it's going to be the patient that's stuck with this tube in the long term. So there is some data from the MIST-1 trial. The British group has done a lot of work in uh, the uh, pleural space, the infected pleural space, and even getting so nitty-gritty as to look at chest tube size. 
and and they've actually really shown that uh, you can place smaller bore tubes. There's really no significant difference in mortality or need for surgical intervention between larger or smaller tubes. The problem, though, is when you have a smaller tube, it can get clogged. It requires more drainage. The problem with a larger tube is it can cause more discomfort, which actually is a significant barrier to patients mobilizing and things. So I think we, we do have to be cognizant of that. So our go-to is typically an ultrasound-placed 14 French pigtail style uh, catheter, which in this scenario for this patient is going to get us a sample. We're going to leave a tube behind. We're going to have continuous drainage, and it should be more comfortable for the patient, allowing them greater mobility. It's so great to hear everyone and their different opinions on what type of tube to put in. I feel like I'm just more comfortable with placing surgical tubes as I'm just in my third year of general surgery training. Uh, Dr. Louie, Dr. White, what do you guys think? How do you decide small bore versus large bore? Is there a right answer here? Well, I think Dr. Gordon's uh, correct. You know, there's no, there's no consensus on what to do. And while we do favor 14 French small bore pigtail catheters, there are times when I really favor a surgical larger bore chest tube, uh, probably because of where I trained and when I trained. And um, I think they affect somewhat better drainage because they're bigger bore. I think part of the art is learning how to put them in with a good rib block, maximizing use of local anesthetic. And then the patient still can remain comfortable once you've put it in because you can put it in without conscious sedation and it will go just fine in that fashion. Yeah, I agree with all the points that have already been said. I tend to favor the pigtail drains. Um, I know they may not drain as well. They're prone to kinking. But a lot of these patients are ultimately going to get either adequate drainage with the pigtail, get lytics, or go to the operating room. And so because of that patient comfort factor and mobilization, the pigtail drains with a smaller bore, patients definitely tolerate them better long-term. So I tend to favor them. But if I felt that there was no role for lytics and all we wanted was maximum drainage, then clearly a 20, 24 French chest tube is going to be better for that. While there are patient factors we definitely consider, the correct answer is obvious. Just drain the chest, as Dr. Gordon has made emphatically his point. How that's done, I think, is ultimately less important. I've heard two words here. One is art and one is no role. So I'm interested as we go forward. Art is critically important. I'm not going to deny the fact that, you know, we're all a product of where we train, what we're comfortable with, and that's just critical. Uh, but we also need to evolve and we need to do what's best for the patient, uh, like Peter said. And so I, I, I really think that our comfort level does need to change according to the patient and the scenario that's in front of us. And uh, Neverlytics, I'm interested as we go forward hearing the Neverlytics story. Everything needs to be on the table. Agreed. And I think we're going to have a great discussion as we go on through this podcast as to how we manage these patients um, as their clinical picture evolves. Um, so this patient that we started our clinical scenario with, um, he actually ended up getting a 28 French surgical chest tube. Uh, it immediately drained 900 cc's of purulent fluid, so consistent with an empyema. His fluid studies, as we predicted, uh, showed an exudative effusion. He had an elevated neutrophil count, a low glucose, low pH. His LDH was 1,200. And then we monitored him with serial chest x-rays. Um, and over the next 24 hours, his chest x-ray improved, but the effusion wasn't fully drained. Um, and then on top of that, his chest tube didn't put out much additional fluid, only about 100 cc's 
um, in the next 24 hours. So we start thinking, what's the next step? What are we going to do next? So this is where we get to the meat of our conversation today and discuss our two big options. It's one of the reasons we brought Dr. Gordon on as our guest today to check out about surgery versus intrapleural fibrinolytic therapy. Surgical decortication, most commonly done by VATS these days, has been around for decades. Not the VATS, but certainly the decortication. But before we get into comparing the two, let's talk briefly about lytic therapy and the evidence supporting its use for management of these patients. Dr. Gordon, can you review this for us? Yeah, you know, the story for lytics or lytics plus enzymes is a, an interesting story. It goes pretty far back. Uh, there was a trial that was published, single center published out of Texas many years ago that compared streptokinase to surgery and favored surgery. But most of the early trials uh, with single agent therapy in the chest really showed no benefit. So a uh, comparison trial is hard to really judge. And this all changed in about 2011 when, again, the British group published a, a really uh, a landscape-changing trial called the MIS-2 trial. And this was a forearm trial where they compared uh, intrapleural uh, TPA to intrapleural TPA, TPA plus DNAs to saline and DNAs alone. So there were four arms to the trial, and the primary outcome that they were really looking for was drainage of the chest. So we talked a little bit earlier about this notion of serial chest x-rays looking at the chest. And what you're looking for is, again, as we talked about, the lung expanding pleural apposition and actually draining that space effectively. And so what the trial actually showed is that there was a clear benefit of the combined therapy. And now this is where it gets a little testy of whether you say it's dual agent fibrinolytic or dual agent enzymatic therapy because it's combinations of uh, TPA plus Dornase, uh, DNase alpha, uh, and that showed a clear benefit over placebo, over in introducing saline. And it actually, that was the largest benefit, but it actually showed a, a benefit over the other two arms as well. So, you know, this really changed the landscape. For the first time, we had data that suggested that we could drain the chest. Now, remember, we always are going to have to be careful about what we talk about with our endpoints. But for the first time, we actually showed that a non-surgeon, a hospitalist, somebody could do something that could drain the chest. And I think this really opened up the floor for a discussion of best management. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Yeah, so clearly the MIS-2 trial established combination lytic plus enzymatic therapy better than salt water. But that leads us to, well, the follow-up question to that is, how do they compare to surgical intervention? Because that's really what we're looking at is, which is the best way to clear the chest of the infection? Is it lytics or is it surgery? So do you have any input on that? Well, I mean, this is behind the knife, right? So a chance to cut is a chance to save, and that should probably end the podcast on that note, I would assume. But, you know... I the reality, all kidding aside, is that, you know, you're absolutely right. So the MIS-2 trial told us 
that you can put in enzymatic therapy, you can put in lytic therapy and drain the chest. But it didn't answer the question of something that we've been doing for a very long time and effectively doing, which is surgical drainage of the chest uh, is now no longer viable. So we need to start looking at this. And, and this is where I think it's, you know, it's really important that we engage in asking interesting questions and doing clinical trials. Before I get into the fact of comparison clinical trials, we did a retrospective study looking at our own network and system after the MIS-2 trial was published. So uh, we looked at uh, over 500 patients, I believe it was about 560 patients system-wide who had uh, plural space infections. Uh, and we began uh, to compare uh, what not only what they looked like, but uh, uh, what outcomes these patients had. Now, our system is a community-based system. There's over 18 hospitals in it. There's multiple states. So a retrospective study, again, can't tell you why someone does something, but we can look at, at what the outcomes are. So one of the important things to notice about this trial is that we actually had fairly good comparison between the two groups. One of the challenges of previous publications, and there was a publication by Dr. Farood Faraj at the University of Washington comparing uh, this, and they showed that there was a significant difference between the groups. Surgery patients were younger, healthier, more fit, and the lytic patients were older. So we actually had a little bit better comparison group showing that these were there was good equipoise between the group. 55% uh, of the patients had surgery up front. And, and really what we found was that the surgical group had fewer additional interventions fewer failures, and fewer crossovers. So, you know, the treatment failure in the lytic group or the combined enzymatic group, which remember we looked at MIS-2 trial compatible patients, so patients that received both uh, uh, TPA and DNAs, uh, the failure group or the requirement for crossover was 29% uh, and 19% uh, going on to need additional therapy. Now, again, retrospective, uh, higher than what was seen in the MIS-2, but certainly compelling and raises questions about do we have a new intervention that's better or do we just have a new intervention and we need to better understand uh, when it's appropriate to use it. So the, in the retrospective series, surgery is still a very viable option uh, and uh, certainly now needs to be considered between the two in a more uh, organized control setting. Well, you know, I think this is exactly where the data is lacking in this conversation that uh, we were having internally about the best options has gone on. And one of the reasons we invited Jed to be our guest on this podcast was to discuss some of the recent public randomized control trial work he's been doing, looking at surgery analytic therapy. Jed, you want to take us through some of the stuff that you just published on, on looking at this uh, randomized uh, pilot trial that uh, we conducted or you conducted? Yeah, thanks. You know, like I said, I think that uh, a new intervention that comes on is exciting and fascinating. And the next step is to understand, is that new intervention better than what we traditionally do or uh, something that we need to have in our back pocket and consider, but it shouldn't completely usurp everything that we're doing. And the only way to answer that is with a randomized uh, clinical controlled trial. Retrospective studies are good, 
but they really don't answer these kind of questions. So we embarked uh, here uh, at Swedish in the Department of Thoracic Surgery on a single center pilot study uh, comparing the use of uh, dual agent enzymatic therapy, uh, TPA plus DNAs, and compared it to surgical intervention, whether that be VATS or uh, surgeon decision of what they needed to do. Uh, this was recently published in uh, JAMA Network Open uh, uh, this year in April. Uh, and really the primary outcome was to look and see if we can have an algorithm that surgeons, pulmonologists, hospitalists, that we can all agree on, participate in, and uh, uh, move forward to a larger multicenter randomized controlled trial. So remember, pilot studies aren't often or can't be randomized and powered to give us the answer. That's going to require a bigger study. But uh, this is the uh, first published trial, we're proud to say, uh, looking at a comparison of uh, general surgical intervention, meaning thoracic surgeons doing the intervention uh, versus uh, dual agent therapy. And you know, it's not powered, but again, it, it tends to lean in favor of, of surgery being uh, a good option in terms of uh, outcomes. Now, I'm going to take a second and, and, and just usurp everybody's time a little bit because outcomes is a, is a general term and we need to be very clear. The MIS-2 trial showed that we could drain the chest, right? That was their primary outcome. So we're good at getting fluid out. They actually showed that there were fewer individuals that needed to cross over into surgery, uh, and so that was a secondary outcome. What we're looking at now are more relevant outcomes in terms of patient outcomes. So we're interested in, and uh, one of the primary outcomes that we're most interested in is chest tube duration, because we believe that the chest tube reflects the ongoing plural space process. Uh, and our secondary outcome is going to be total hospitalizations. But unfortunately, in this day and age, there's other things that impact hospitalization, placement, uh, bed availability, many different things. Uh, so we're looking at both of those. Uh, and so we're looking at uh, very clinically relevant outcomes. Uh, and we're, uh, we see a signal for these in the, ran in the pilot study. But we're going to need a larger trial. And I'm going to, uh, again, give a plug for both friends and colleagues uh, over in the UK who are working on the MIST-3 trial, which is a comparison of, uh, again, it's a pilot study done in the UK comparing uh, lytics to surgery. They have presented an abstract form at the American Thoracic Society, a pulmonary meeting, not the surgical uh, thoracic society meeting. Uh, and again, their signal actually is also beginning to favor potentially surgery in terms of uh, uh, length of stay, but their lytic patients have less pain. So again, uh, we have a lot to learn about how these two interventions will affect people, but it's exciting that there are uh, there is movement towards randomized clinical trials in this space. Dr. Gordon, thank you so much uh, for walking us through all of that data. And for all our listeners out there, we'll include all of these papers in our show notes so you can um, have a chance to go look through them in more detail um, in your free time. I think one of the exciting things about research is how we start to apply it to patients at the bedside. 
so Dr. White, when you're talking to a patient about their options of surgery versus lytics, how do you frame this data that Dr. Gordon just uh, talked through with us um, in that decision and, and clinical discussion with your patients? Yeah, so although Dr. Gordon has said multiple times it's just a pilot study, there was a signal that overall hospital length of stay and chest tube duration was less with surgery compared to lytics. And we want to use the most recent data. And so I do use that to talk to patients uh, when we are discussing lytics versus surgical therapy. Uh, because in my own experience, I think that uh, aligns with uh, that signal uh, in his study as well. So I start with trying to assess the full clinical scenario. You want to look at imaging, thickness of the rind, complexity of the fusion, location of the effusion, whether it's early in the course or late in the course. And you want to assess the patient's ability to actually undergo an operation. I mean, there are certain patients where an operation's not going to be their best option. And an alternative option like lytics uh, may actually uh, uh, give them a far better treatment and an outcome. Uh, once we've kind of assessed all of that, um, there are certain patients where surgical decortication probably makes more sense. Late empyemas with very thick rinds where you know that lung is going to be trapped. And it's really hard to envision lytic therapy getting rid of a one centimeter thick, like three month rind. It, it's just not likely to happen. So in those cases, I'd favor surgical decortication um, because we have to get that lung to fill the space and, and oppose the, the chest wall, uh, just like Dr. Gordon was saying. Now, there are some of those clinical trial patients that we enrolled in Dr. Gordon's trial where I thought lytic therapy would not work. And we were surprised that they did have very good chest drainage. And there are some papers that says we're not very good at assessing the pleural space, even with CT scans. Um, it can't fully understand the true chronicity. Uh, and so I don't always go by imaging alone. You kind of take the full picture in. So this is where to sit, shared decision-making comes in with patients. I review lytic therapy with them. I talk about the course, that it's twice a day, for three days, so six doses. Uh, now, some patients will have an exceptional response. They may not need the full three days, but what we know is that longer than three days probably isn't gonna provide them additional benefit. And then we talk about, well, what would be the results with surgery? It's an upfront operation and risk and pain, but it's generally d the definitive way to treat it. Surgery is more likely to lead to a final outcome and with the signal from Jed's study, potentially earlier discharge, shorter chest tube duration. Um, so I talk about these options with patients, and there are some patients that absolutely want to avoid surgery. They'd try anything else, even if they were an excellent surgical candidate. Well, lytic therapy, I think, is a great option for them. There are others that want the most definitive, highest likelihood they do one thing and that's it, and they're done and out of the hospital. Well, I think in that scenario, surgery still offers them the best option. And so together with, with the patients, we kind of come up with that decision-making process. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, uh, it's, it's, their results um, are largely dictated by that. So, okay, okay so that's great. So what happened with this scenario and this patient? Yeah, so just to give everyone a snapshot for this clinical scenario um, of how this patient did. Um, so he was randomized into the lytic arm of our study. He received the standard TPA and DNAs twice daily for six doses. Um, and then he got a CT chest at the conclusion of his lytic therapy, um, which we often do to assess how, how the chest is drained. 
and there was only a minimal residual space. His chest tube was putting out less and less. It was below 200 a day. And so he was able to get his tube removed and he discharged home. Um, he had good um, outpatient follow-up. It was uncomplicated and he didn't need any additional procedures. Um, and for this patient, his total length of stay was about 10 days um, to complete the course of his treatment. So that's a success. One point for Dr. Gordon. This concludes part one of our clinical challenges on complex pleural effusions and empyemas. We hope you stay tuned and listen to part two, in which we'll dive deeper into the surgical management uh, of this disease process. Until then, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.